0: Welcome to episode 158 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson.
1: And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Bob Baxley. He was most recently the head of design at Pinterest. Before that, he was at Apple and Yahoo. And we had
0: a great conversation talking about managing millennials. Uh, he's been in the industry <laughs> for quite a while. And he's still in an IC. And that's really interesting. And yeah, doing IC work. Even after. though he's been the head of design, yeah. he's coming back to IC work. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. love that.
1: It was a really, really fun conversation. Uh, we hope you enjoy it before we get in a couple announcements first up there's a new podcast on the spec network layout
0: our friends kevin and rafa are joining the network so now you can get even more design podcasts in your life
1: we are really excited to have more podcasts on the spec network and for anyone that's needing more design content this is for you you can check it out just go to spec.fm we have layout there they're releasing an episode a week all about design and technology and programming and everything else and it's a lot of fun. And we're so excited to have them on the show. You should go subscribe, check them out.
0: And give feedback. We're, we're definitely working to make all the shows better. This is one of the best benefits of working with them is like they're really open to feedback. So, so
1: again, go to spec.fm and subscribe to Layout. And of course, before we get into this episode, we want to thank Wayno for making this episode possible.
0: Wayno is building digital products for humans. They're an agency that does incredible work for incredible, incredible teams. And the people there are just the best.
1: So why are they sponsoring us? They're sponsoring Design Details because basically they just hit us up. They said, we like listening to the podcast and we want other people who like listening to the podcast to know what we're up to. So here we go. They're doing killer work for awesome people. Uh, They've worked for companies like Airbnb, Medium, Cisco, Lonely Planet, Google, Reuters, Fitbit, Dropbox, Red Bull. The list goes on, it's insane. They're just constantly cranking out beautiful work and they want you to check it out.
0: You should go check out their work on Dribbble, uh, dribble.com slash U-E-N-O. And oh my God, it's just ridiculous. It's great to go get inspired. You should read their case
1: studies on their website at ueno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot And of course, if you wanna join this amazing team, they're hiring. They have offices in New York and San Francisco where they're looking for product designers. They even have
0: an office in Reykjavik, Iceland. Because so why not? <laughs> dude, Iceland's beautiful. Yes. Everyone should have an office in Reykjavik.
1: Okay. So go check out their website, Wayno.co. Go follow them on Dribbble, dribble.com slash weno. If you need some laughs, they are hilarious and post awesome stuff on Twitter. Their and Instagram. Twitter
0: account is fantastic. It's just like the employees going nuts. Yeah. So their Twitter and Instagram
1: is waino.co. Uh, it's uenodo co we'll have links to all this in the show notes you should go follow them they post awesome and very funny stuff but of course at the end of the day go check out wayno.co look at their work we are so thankful to have them as sponsors and and friends and friends. and we appreciate them making this episode possible so once again wayno.co
0: thanks again to wayno and with that let's get into episode 158 with bob baxley
2: My name is Bob Baxley. I'm a practicing designer who lives and works in Silicon Valley. been using that phrase for 20 some odd years now and I'm sticking with it. Clean,
1: simple. What are you working on right now?
2: Um, right now I'm contracting at an interesting little company called carrot Sense, which okay. is in the med tech space. Okay. I've only been there a couple of months, but they're working on a, something to help people uh, with behavior modification. Wait, okay. is
0: this the carrot apps that like make fun of you?
2: No, no, this is something you've never heard of in which I'm being purposely vague about because I don't want to give away too much, but Perfect. Um, it's been a you know, it kind of an unexpected educational experience as these things always are um, delving into the med tech space and starting to kind of wrap your head around what it means to develop products that are compliant with government regulations yeah. from the FDA and otherwise um, plus going into a place that um, some might consider a, a design desert, so going into a for one, a really small company, only about six people, but also no one who had traditional experience in tech uh, or even in design. And so trying to... How's that? It's not without its challenges, but it certainly has its opportunities. Um, it depends on how uh, how interested and how engaged the other people are, you know, and how quickly you can prove the validity of the methods, um, I think, as they start to experience professional designers who can come in and work at a level of detail and a level of rigor that they aren't familiar with, they start to realize that design's a much more complicated, sophisticated, valuable skill, and it's not just, you know, people sketching stuff. And so I think like many startups without, you know, that professional design involvement, they spent quite some time doing the first version of their product. It's not really where they want it to be. You know, you get a few professional designers in there and they're able to come up with something much better
1: in relatively short order. Right. What's the state of design in med tech right now that you've seen?
2: You know, not that impressive, to be honest. Looking at a a handful of the companies, um, I think it applies to the wearables as well. Uh, I just got a Garmin Forerunner 235 watch, which is an awesome device with incredible functionality. With a
1: very memorable name.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Garmin is... uh, yeah, they got a lot of numbers. Um but it's truly the first GPS watch I've used that actually works, connects to the satellites quickly and has a lot of value. Um I was looking to see if you were wearing it, but uh I'm not. I left it at home. But it you know, it, it measures uh sleep and activity and a whole bunch of things, connects to Apple Health, all that stuff. It measures where where you travel while you sleep. Yes, exactly. Problem so solved. if you're sleepwalking, bam, you got it. Um You know, and they have a great smart or they have a smartphone app, which I'm sure they put a lot of energy into, but it is just so navigationally complex. Um, Visually, it could be better. So uh, while there's enormous amounts of cool functionality that I'm confident they've worked really hard on, um, I'm not sure that they had great design uh, kind of at that higher level of how does this whole thing hang together? How does it make sense? Uh, Again, sort of navigationally from an object model perspective. And I see that lacking in a lot of apps. They've just added more and more features. And more and more you see the users trying to figure out, like, where the hell am I? Like, what the fuck is going on? Um, So I think a lot of med tech products suffer from that simply because it's not a space that's attracted a lot of traditional designers, which is largely because there's so much demand for design just in the consumer space. Mm -hmm. And I think most designers just would prefer to work on what they think could be, you know, the most popular app in the app store. Uh Um, You do find a few missionary designers who have gone into places because they feel they can make a huge difference in the world. Um, And I've met some of those, but, um, you know, they they almost realize that they're making a very conscious career decision to spend their talents and energies working in that space as opposed to doing the next big, big thing.
0: Well, you also hear, like, I think the most medical companies you hear about are pharmaceutical companies, and some of the practices aren't particularly, like, exciting right like it feels very salesy or very like manipulative things like that like uh who's the who's the guy who just bought the uh martin screlly or whatever oh but yeah he's, he's an a outlying example yeah yeah like would we call that in med pop culture though? they kind of no yeah. not, not med tech but medical in general Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. that's kind of what i think it's of is like field. pharmaceutical companies i not i don't know how to approach it beyond that
2: sure well i think there's there's companies that are I don't want to say scams, but there's there's bottom feeder companies in every segment. So yeah. I'm not sure that's unique that's to medical. True. You know, I, I will say, you know, medical has the a lot of added complexity related mm-hmm. to regulatory stuff from the government, which trust me, is a is a patient, you don't want to get rid of. So it's just a lot more stuff to navigate for the designers and the engineers. Um it so complicates the business and then also obviously the payment model is really complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get reimbursed from insurance? And if so, how do you get the insurance companies on board? Is it something the patient pays for directly? And if so, that limits how much you can charge. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's a, it's it's not only a complicated design space because of the type of information you're trying to communicate and the types of changes you're typically trying to do with the the patient, plus their natural emotional state when they open some of these apps. But you just have this incredibly complicated business that you have to navigate, um, even more complicated than finance. You know, Brian, mm-hmm. I know you work on payments. So payments are are money, right? And money can be recovered. Um, Med tech stuff is people's health and people's right. lives, you know, and you start doing inaccurate things on diabetes tracking, you know, uh, heart rate tracking, blood pressure cuffs. Like, there's a level, level of rigor to that stuff that's kind of at a, a different degree of involvement. Next so
1: level bug testing. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And again, the regulatory stuff, I I hate to keep coming back to that, but, you know, once a device has been submitted to the FDA, um, you have to have a log that shows all the changes you've made to it, even in things like text strings. You know, if you make a rev to the product, it's got to go back to the FDA for approval. So a lot of the methods that we use in modern app development, like A-B testing, things like that, they're just not readily available
0: for medical, uh, for medical apps. The turnaround sounds like it's extremely long.
2: Right. And so they're kind of constantly behind. Um, And also, you know, again, that's not necessarily sexy if you're a designer who wants to see your work out in the world. Um, So again, you see some missionary designers, and it's not uncommon that they have some incredibly moving personal story, you know, that um, their little brother has autism, and so that drew them to this, you know, speech app or something.
0: Are you functioning as an IC there, or are you helping them with learning design processes? Where do you, you know, fit I'm in? I'm
2: functioning as an IC. Okay. So uh, I'm paired with a visual designer who's working remotely from Portland. Okay. Um, and I'm working mostly on the product vision, uh, doing really ugly wireframes, uh, uh, documenting a lot of stuff in a, in a Google Doc, and trying to think through all the corner cases and, um, and think through a bunch of things that I, I think – Certainly, if you're not really dug into complicated, thoughtful design, um, and I mean like the really rigorous stuff that, again, you have to think through when you're doing financial apps and medical apps, um, you know, a lot of that stuff's usually left to engineering. So we're trying to exhibit the value of design and thinking through that stuff in advance of it
1: going over to the engineers. Let's talk a little bit about working for like quote unquote sexy apps uh, because the med tech space would might not be considered that but they're solving Well theoretically they could have the most sexy apps. <laughs> Theor- yeah, yeah yeah, I mean yeah, there's nothing that wouldn't make it that but it's it's not the case right now, right? Like it's more attractive to go work at the hot startup or the or the big the big tech companies. Like what would what would you say to people that might be battling with like, well, there's interesting problems but it's not like it's not a sexy company or it's not going to be this big billion user kind of thing.
0: You know,
2: honestly, I, I'm reading more articles. I just read one this morning on Medium where people are exhibiting or describing a lot of frustration with Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and whether or not there's oh, a lot constantly. of... yeah constantly. Yeah, um, and whether or not there's a lot of meaning to it. So I think as designers, you know, and I don't want to say that the other disciplines aren't oriented this way as well, but designers are naturally empathetic. You don't go into this profession if you're not naturally empathetic and deeply caring about other people. Um, so I think... Uh, to somebody who's considering going into med tech or something like that, I'd, I'd ask them to really question and think about their natural empathy and what they want their legacy to be. And so it's it's true you can work on some interesting little feature that a billion people are going to see, and it's going to you know maybe momentarily give them some dopamine rush or something. And I don't I don't mean to belittle that. That's useful as well and important.
0: You can work on Pokemon Go. <laughs> we'll get the Pokemon Go. In a product that a lot of people <laughs> use. We'll get the
2: Pokemon Go. I love Pokemon Go.
0: Um,
2: you know, or your legacy could be, oh, I worked on this app and it touched, you know, a million people and helped them manage their diabetes. And, you know, for certain types of designers at certain places to in their career. Pokemon,
0: go take your insulin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow. This hatred of Pokemon. You're just upset about the Pokemon thing.
0: Because it's a bad game and it has Pokemon in it. Pokemon are good games.
2: Okay, so <laughs> so we'll go to Pokemon Go. Well, um, I, I,
1: I, I, can we, can we well, get you there? you guys are ready. Yeah, let's we'll get, go to Pokemon well, Go because well, 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 I have a whole well. different theory on why it's interesting. Okay, okay. let's get there in a second. I, I want to just quickly answer the article you read this morning sounds like it's questioning Silicon Valley and like are the things we're building meaningful. What do you think? You've been here 20 years. What are you seeing the, the oh, look, pattern there, or trend? Yeah, look, there's always a lot
2: of frivolous stuff going on in tech, right? Sure. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. And, so, like, and some of this stuff is entertainment, you know, and, and you can kind of tell the stuff that's entertainment because it's usually supported by advertising. um, And that stuff's valuable. Entertainment's super valuable. You know, it helps people lead better lives and it's worth – entertainment's great. Sports is entertainment. Lots lots of things are entertaining and have incredible value. That's not necessarily, you know, substance for people's lives. So, uh yeah, I do think there's a lot of frivolous stuff going on in Silicon Valley, but – I don't know if that's unusual, and I don't necessarily
1: think that's bad, um, as long as we haven't thrown overboard all the other stuff as well. Except when the rest of the world looks at us and says, what the fuck are they doing? Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, I've been through a couple of these cycles, and so I do sort of think of it
2: like a forest, and you've got all this undergrowth that builds up. Um, and it tends to be sort of this frivolous stuff. And then some event happens and a big giant fire runs through and, <laughs> you know, and, and a bunch of stuff gets taken out and a bunch of stuff will get taken out. I don't, I don't know. What, I don't think anybody knows what we could speculate on that, but a bunch but, of stuff will get taken out and will go away.
0: And only the strongest trees survive. And only the
2: strongest trees survive. And right now we know there's four trees and we call them Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, we had a big giant revolution starting with the app store. And so far we got four winners. And I think Microsoft's trying real hard to be a fifth winner, and we'll see with the LinkedIn acquisition. Other than that, the you know the FANG companies rule the roost. The FANG, <laughs> the, companies? the FANG companies, they're known companies? as the FANG companies.
1: Yeah, I've never heard Facebook, that. Apple, Facebook,
2: Apple. The N is for Amazon, and the G for Google. And for Amazon, and for Amazon because you already had A for Apple, and you know I'll let you do the math there. Uh, <laughs> not sure how much math and logic was place. <laughs> Yeah, the FANG companies, it's pretty, pretty well known. You know? And if you look around you know, or, you know. fa- you know, Facebook, again, those four companies, they, they rule everything mm-hmm. yeah. you know, in ways that people don't even realize. You, know, you think about you know, Google is the on-ramp to all the content on the internet, right? You look at their uh, advertising uh, market share in Europe. Last time I looked, it was like 98%. Um, it's just, they are a monopoly everywhere in the world. If you don't, if your stuff can't get found by Amazon, uh, by Google, you might as well not exist. And then Amazon Web Services, it's, Amazon's not about being a store. Walmart can be a store. That's not, that's not the thing. The thing is, like all these other startups, Pinterest is one example, but there's thousands and thousands of other ones that are running on Amazon infrastructure. They, they control mm-hmm. the infrastructure of the, of the internet. Um, Apple makes the devices and sets the standards for all this stuff. Um, and who did I leave out? Uh, Facebook <laughs> face, and then Facebook right Facebook the most is, important no one, one. cares Facebook. about Facebook <laughs> <laughs> but fa- I think many consumers miss the uh, constellation of apps that Facebook has assembled and so even when it's sort of like ABC right you don't realize when you're watching ESPN that you're actually on ABC or when you go or I guess Disney owns all that stuff like people don't necessarily realize how all that stuff's stitched together and so people are interacting with Facebook gazillions of times a day and don't realize that they're
1: interacting with Facebook yeah and Pokemon Go <laughs> Fang p <laughs> Fango.
2: Yeah. So, look, I'm too old for Pokemon, so I don't quite understand the whole cultural reference to Pokemon. What I found amazing about the game is that it got me out in the real world. And my first really interesting experience was a few weeks back. I was touring colleges with my son, who just started his senior year in high school, and one of the schools we went to was the University of Oregon in Eugene. And so. I had some time in the afternoon. I walked along the river, and I was hunting down Pokemon, and I saw dozens of people doing the same thing, and I started conversations with them, including this one kind of burned out hippie guy that was like, hey, dude, we've been out hunting Pokemon all day. Like, yesterday was awesome. Like, I did like 10 miles, man. My legs are killing me. Um, you You're know, like, sweet. And I had interactions with those people that I wouldn't have otherwise had, you know? Yeah. And when I got back home, and we live in Los Altos, and, you know, it's obviously a very... T- Tech-centric uh, uh, town, being just a little south of Palo Alto, lots of tech executives. And you know, I'm walking downtown, and there's there's probably a hundred people walking around downtown, which is this you know sleepy, quiet little downtown. There's like a hundred people playing Pokemon <laughs> Go. You know, everybody yeah. from six year olds to I talked to one guy who was 54 and had been awake till like two o'clock in the morning the previous night hunting stuff up in Man, the hills.
0: A hundred people in a tiny town with
2: no taste. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was, everybody was, they were talking, uh, right? Yeah. Like some of the kids had set lures and so they were hanging out together. So like we could talk about how crappy the gameplay was and all the rest <laughs> of this stuff, but
1: I also. At the end of the day, it, it worked, right?
2: Well, look, I, I don't know, but personally I don't think it's going to last, you know, I don't know what yeah. features they have. I think it's a, a cultural phenomenon, but it's a moment in time and it's, you know, for the few weeks that it distracts us, it's kind of cool, you know, and.
0: We so can like, use a distraction right now.
2: I think we can use a distraction right now. You know, I can either sit at home and stress about the presidential election or, you know, I can go hunt some more Pikachus. And for a week or two, maybe hunting the Pikachus isn't like a bad thing. <laughs> that doesn't you
0: sound know. so bad, actually. <laughs> yeah.
2: So so I, 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 um, I'm not trying to defend Pokemon Go as a game uh-huh, or anything sure. like that. I'm just saying it, it is, you know, kind of an interesting cultural phenomenon. And I have seen it generate uh what i might call cross generational conversation uh-huh. that i haven't seen other thing other apps and things do like i don't encounter a bunch of middle schoolers and talk to them about how they use snapchat or instagram well i mean i sometimes do but then they look at me weird but you know <laughs> if i'm downtown and i can i can go up to some kids that are playing the game and we can start having a conversation and sort of relate over this this experience we're both having and um that's pretty unusual you know there's mm-hmm. a um, you know, as a, as a sort of aging baby boomer, there's not that many places where I get to talk to people who are late teens or even early 20s and it be, you know, sort of socially acceptable or normal because for lots of different reasons, we've not only sort of segregated ourselves according to, you know, economic uh, economic situation or political views, like we're pretty segregated generationally. You know in my time at Pinterest, mm-hmm. which is a company you know i would say led by Gen X and largely uh populated the workers the employees tend to mostly be millennials you know I had teenagers at home and so I had gen z folks at home and my observation at pinterest was it was that the other generations were pretty blind to what was going on with gen z um, and so you know from my kid's point of view, Pinterest was something they had to use in history class. Um, wow. Whereas if you were 22 or 23, it was something you were using to plan your life. Uh-huh. And I just think it was, again, there's no cultural norm where a 23 year old, you know, like like when was the last time you guys actually talked to a 14 year old, you know? Well, Brian is 14, so <laughs> <laughs> today, I mean, two yeah, minutes ago. Yeah, I mean, unless you've got like a younger sibling or something. And you know they yeah. they're using technology in whole different ways. Like this is you know this is the generation that grew up walking up to the TV because I think it's a multi touch display. And then if you see toddlers
0: today, they get really confused when they walk <laughs> up to the TV. They, <laughs> they put fingerprints on your TV oh, screen. Like uh, you wouldn't believe that's why you have to shut TV. Shut out. Them down. <laughs> You're up for adoption
1: now. Well, can we can we talk a little more about this because I think you do have a perspective diversity in tech is a huge issue but it's not just race it's like diversity of backgrounds and diversity of experience and diversity of age is probably something that isn't talked about a whole lot right yeah i refer to this as generational millennials yeah building these working sure. at the fang companies right yeah
2: yeah so i refer to this as generational diversity you know at pinterest i was again a baby boomer um you know i was fortunate to be able to bring susan Kerr into the company susan of course did all the original icon work um for the Mac back in 1984. So she's even slightly older than me. She's the nicest. She is. Yeah. And she is literally an icon. So it's, uh, oh. and she's uh has yeah, been a fantastic addition to that team and to the company. And I think for her, finding a home has been really meaningful as well because she had spent um, really kind of since leaving next back in whenever that might've been the mid nineties, she'd been contracting at a variety of companies. So I think for her to, to find a home was really uh, meaningful. Um, yeah. But I, I don't know if the, like many companies, I don't know if, if they were really seeking out to, f- to focus on generational diversity. Right. Mm-hmm. You and I that's do an think, issue? You, I do. I think you get different perspectives. I, I think the tricky part, and I say this as someone who's an older generation, is it is all too easy to become the grumpy old guy. Um, and I think that's probably where some of the conflict comes you know, if you've been around the block a few times, you tend to tell people that the idea they have probably isn't going to work. Well, we
0: do that even when we haven't been around the block that many times.
2: (laughs) Welcome to design. (laughs) Yeah. So, so look, I think it cuts both ways. You know, if you're in your early fifties and you're trying to work with people that are 22, you can't you can't act like their parent, right? You, ha- you have to be able to put that aside. Um, and then they have to be able to see you as a peer and not as someone who is their parent's friends, uh-huh. right? So you have to be able to see each other. Their work parent. Well, you have to be, a- <laughs> you have to be able to see each other <laughs> just as human hey, beings. Hey, dad, can you, <laughs> you know? can you give me a design crit? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're both just craftsmen, right? We're just yeah. designers doing the thing. And, and you know, I hadn't thought about it, but th- maybe this is the thing that was meaningful to me about Pokemon Go is it was a way to bridge that generational divide and take that, Uh, tension out of the mix and just be two people
1: irrespective of age that were enjoying that experience why do you think the generation generational divide is so intense i mean i guess we could trace it back to how long people have been designing for the web or something like that but like why is it that there's not really many people from the baby boomers actively eye seeing or like having conversations like this Unless I'm just totally have my head in the sand. No,
2: there's there's not. I only know a few people that are over 48 that are still in the game. Um, look, I think it's a couple of things. One, it wasn't a game (laughs) when, when, when we were starting our careers. Like, I started in 1990 when I was 27 and just happened to stumble and, you know, through a weird series of events, stumbled into a role at a company called Claris, which was a software subsidiary of Apple at the time and became a UI designer before anybody would have used that term or thought about it, right? I mean, there was, you count on one hand the number of companies that would have employed that kind of a role. In fact, it was known, and the, the the role's been at a company like Apple long enough that it's at that point was known as a human factors engineer. Um, so it's not like in 1990 there's all these designers running around, right? So I I think that's partly why there's not too many. Uh, baby boomers in the in the market. Sure. And then you know, the smartest baby boomers, they've ridden at least three tech waves. So they had the desktop app wave, then they had the web wave, and now they got the mobile wave. So unless they're just really bad with money like me, they probably have cashed out. <laughs> um, okay. And then, you know, honestly, it's, you know, tech is really demanding and intense. And uh, I think a lot of people just burn out. Um, and you have to really really love it. You have to love making software. Um, because if you don't after 10 or 15 years you're probably going to go do something else.
1: What keeps you going?
2: I love software. There you go. I just I love making software. I that's why I started at the beginning, you know. I'm a designer who lives and works in Silicon Valley. That's I don't have any Uh, you know, prefix to designer. I don't talk about, you know, I'm a visual designer. I'm an interaction designer. designer. Product Like, I just don't deal (laughs) with any of that crap. I'm a designer who lives and works in Silicon Valley. I love making software. Uh Um, And I'm fortunate I found it. um, It suits my personality type. It suits how I approach the world, how I solve problems. Um, So I've been incredibly fortunate and gotten to work at some amazing
0: companies and have some terrific stories. So. We should talk about it.
1: <laughs> so you got started when you
0: were 27. Wait, you said terrific stories. You've been holding on to us for 20 minutes?
1: <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, yeah, I got a lot of good, <laughs> lot of good stories. Um, so you got started at 27? Yeah, I... Um, what happened?
2: Yeah, sort of a weird... This is this is a good cultural or a generational difference. So I learned to program when I was in seventh grade, uh, and I learned BASIC on a Wang computer, um, which had a, a cassette drive to store data had a green CRT and 4K of memory. And uh, I learned in my math Dude, mat- 4K glass. is like the latest and greatest. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was super into it. I loved, I love programming. Again, it's kind of how my brain worked. And I was on a trajectory to be an engineer, but for reasons that still confused me and what I think was a horrible parenting decision, my parents decided to not uh, encourage me to go into programming. <laughs> and so I was hoping they would buy me an Apple II, back when they were fairly new, um, they decided they were worried about me being a nerd, so they didn't do that. Um, (gasps) So I ended up uh, studying history and radio television film, both of which ended up being fantastic degrees for design.
0: I cried when I got placed in advanced history because I thought I was going to be a nerd.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And here we are. I would much
0: rather pen in programming. (laughs)
2: Yeah, so uh, the Mac came out my senior year in college. You know, I finally convinced him to buy me a computer. My grades shot through the roof because suddenly I was spending time editing my papers and really going through it. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Technology's good. Yeah, this was like 1985. So when I got out of college, you know, the big five history firms weren't hiring. And, the big uh, five
1: history firms. It <laughs> just was no jobs. Is that like history textbooks? Yeah, there's just no history jobs at summer. Oh, I thought you were poking yeah. at like the fang thing. <laughs> no, no.
2: <laughs> I was referring to accounting. Uh, history revolution. The, the, yes. the accounting firms. But <laughs> the, okay. the history fang. <laughs> the history fang. So I uh, sort of randomly met a budding graphic designer, and we started a little company doing desktop publishing. And um, what does that mean? Did- no sorry desktop publishing so this is graphic design produced on computers what and it was <laughs> what does that mean freaking rev. well <laughs> no, you're talking PageMaker maker 1.0 hey. and <laughs> illustrator 2.0 and you know mac se computers and laying out screen laying out uh, newsletters on little whatever it was like 512 by 380 black and white screens mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sending stuff off to typesetting agencies by dial up modem so they could print stuff out on their line of type so you get 1270 dpi resolution instead of 300 blah blah it goes on and on and on so at any rate you remember it, was, it all though oh right? yeah yeah well that's where i learned to use software yeah you know like because you were sitting at the computer and you were in the tools and it all became about keyboard commands and how fast you could go and you sort of gamified the whole experience
0: so we're still at that time <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: so nothing's changed cool
2: yeah yeah no the tools it's the same stuff it's all faster and whatnot but it's it's uh, it's the same sort of experience i think as the as the person doing the work hmm. um so at any rate, I, I decided I didn't really want to have a desktop publishing firm for life, uh, and I decided I wanted a job in tech. So I sat down one fateful day with a copy of Macworld magazine and um, entered the mailing address of every advertiser in that issue and sent them all a resume, uh, literally dropped 107 resumes in the mail as though they were Christmas cards.
0: But were they like 1270
2: DPI? Uh, no, they were only 300 DPI, but they were on craft <laughs> paper. They looked awesome. Wow! Uh, you brute forced <laughs> your way in yeah and so uh they ended up at claris and that became uh, a ui job
1: yeah and um yeah been doing it. what happened when it became a ui job like what kind of stuff we you working
2: on uh well i was initially brought into claris to work on claris Works, which was a, a mac application that had to run in less than 400k of memory um uh which is tiny um And the product had a combination – it was a combination of word processing, spreadsheet, database, vector graphics, raster graphics, and telecommunications. And so at the time, uh, the main competitor would have been a product called Microsoft Works. Uh Uh, And so if you were on a Mac, you could have have bought the productivity suite, which would have included some of the Microsoft products. Or you could have this one app, which was sort of a watered-down, less powerful version. So Clarisworks, uh, I think, remains the only product to ever unseat an existing Microsoft product. So Clarisworks actually ended up pushing Microsoft. did it out of the, uh, yeah. <laughs> And it was, you know, it was an amazing experience because it was an uh, incredibly successful product, not because of me, but because the engineering vision was incredible. Um, and there was user groups that started up all over the country and I could walk into a bookstore and pick a copy of a Clarisworks, you know, uh, manual or book off the shelf and you could flip it open and see screenshots that I'd created in Mac paint. You couldn't on- download it?
0: Come on, dude. <laughs>
2: Shipped on a double-sided floppy, if I recall. Um, so, that was, you know, that was my first taste of getting design published. Um, and boy, once you've had that, it's uh, that's really addictive. So mm-hmm. to be able to walk into a Shipping software, is... Yeah, shipping's amazing. So being able to walk into a um, Egghead, which was a software store at the time, to be able to walk into Egghead and pull a box off the shelf, flip it over over, and, again, literally see screenshots that you had created in Mac Paint on your own computer, and there they were on a box in a store... Um, you know, that that keeps you going for a long time. <laughs> that tangibility
1: for UI design is pretty rare nowadays, right? Yeah, actually, I think there's something kind of lost there.
2: It's, yeah. I, I think as uh, designers, it's a huge issue because we lose track of people actually using the software on the other side. Um, you know, at Apple, I had the, the opportunity to work both on the Apple online store and on products that were used in Apple retail stores. And the difference was, you know, incredible. So on the online store... You know, our designers were sitting at their desks working on a site that was seen by 17% of everybody on the web every year, right? Hundreds of millions of users generating, you know, billions and billions of dollars of revenue. But they didn't see any of that. Like, they were just sitting there by themselves, with their headphones, you know, in light, in, in darkness, you know, <laughs> working on the comps. You know, retail, we'd do something there, and it was used by a much smaller audience, only the retail associates, which is, you know, 50 60,000 people. But you could go into any store in the world, and you could see people using the software. And the retail employees in particular, if you went up and told them you worked on that stuff, you know, they loved it. Like, you could... Go anywhere, but, people would be so excited to see you. But you
0: can't explore the Mac Pro in Parallax in person.
1: <laughs> How do you explain that? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Impossible. Well, I
1: think. Well,
2: I just think it's it. I think it's useful for designers to find informal ways to see people using their using their stuff. You research. Know? Yeah, research is research. It's a little bit, you know, I, I emphasize informal. Like there is something compelling. And interesting as a as an artist and as a designer to walking up to somebody or in my case talking to one of my kids' friends, you know, and asking them what they think about Pinterest or what do they think about the Apple Store app, you know, and I'm sure, you know, for you just to walk up to somebody on the street and ask them about Facebook and yeah. just have this interaction because it's it's something you've created and it's well. really. <laughs> Well, you've, you've interacted with me. You, busy, I mean, you basically w- built Facebook. <laughs> I don't want to say I designed all of
1: Facebook, but I appreciate you're, you're the like compliment. You're like Zuckerberg. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> but you're creating elements of it yeah, yeah, and yeah, you sure. never see anybody use it. Yeah. And I just think it's such a, a downer mm-hmm. because it turns out that software designers are probably like the most prolifically published people ever. You know, I mean, I, uh, I don't mean this to brag, but yeah, I've personally worked on products that, that I know have been used by over a billion people, which not, and I haven't worked on Facebook. <laughs> you know, don't
0: worry, but, that that was Brian but, last month.
1: Like, that's, I remember my first
2: billion, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Like, name another profession that touches a billion mm. people. Like, I don't know if a billion people have read Shakespeare. I'm pretty sure there haven't been a billion people see a Tom Cruise movie. You know Whoa, what I mean? dude. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> I mean, these these numbers are just off the charts. Uh-huh. And I, I I think as designers, like, we just sort of lose sight of that. You know, it's, it's really easy to forget that there's all these people on the other side of what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, you kind of started with what keeps me going. I mean, a lot of that keeps me going. It's like that's incredible you know, you know, I think what, that I, I have the chance to touch that many lives and maybe maybe make somebody's day a little bit better right?
1: or at least not make it worse
0: I think what you're really saying is we should all make Tom Cruise money <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I think the big issue here is that not a billion people haven't seen Tom Cruise movies
0: hi That's I'm the Bryn Cruz <laughs> this got, is this is Top Gun Figma <laughs> we've got big problems to solve uh, let's keep
1: going how, how long were you at Claris uh, I was at Claris for about four years, so worked four on
2: ClarisWorks, um, uh, first couple of versions of Mac Project Pro, mm-hmm. uh, had a little bit of stuff in MacDraw Pro, and then worked on a product called uh, a few things in a product called Claris Resolve,
1: which was a spreadsheet. Okay, yeah. What happened after four years?
2: Uh, yeah, there was a change in management, uh-huh. and um, which I wasn't that big a fan of, sure. so I ended up going into contracting, and spent the next um, like six years. Working at a variety of places as an IC, I had a, an amazing life at the time. I was single, I had no responsibilities. Were you uh, were you an IC at Claris as well? I was. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I really did not want to go into management for a long time, which is a, a, something else we could talk about. But you know, as the the IC experience uh, as a contractor was was really profound for me. Um, I worked on, I think, in the six years I worked in something like. Maybe 40 different companies and about 60 different projects. Something like that. It was a bunch of different companies, bunch of different projects. It's sort of your classic agency experience, but as an individual, which means you have to go in and orient on your own really quickly. And so I look back at that time as sort of my "quote unquote" ten thousand hours because I had to. I in that time period I went from really nascent cell phone design, cell phone app design. I was obviously doing desktop apps on Mac and Windows, starting to do beginning web applications for enterprise and whatnot. It as a TV kiosk. You know, you're working in all these different mediums, and when I reflect on that, I think what I learned is how people and software interact right? At a really fundamental level. So, you know, if you take um, a less experienced designer, they might know how a mobile app works, but they not may not really understand how a TV app works, right? Because they basically understand one language. But if you work in enough different mediums, I think you begin to understand uh, language at sort of the linguist level. You know, you start to understand the system behind grammar and things. And that uh, helps you relate to
0: human-computer interaction in a whole different way. This makes me really excited. So <laughs> I have been... Kind of trying to figure out how design and engineering fit together because I think it's, they're a combined translation layer between humans and computers. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's really what it comes out to. It's totally what it is. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Engineers represent the needs of the machine. Yeah, you're right. Engineers represent the needs of the machine. Mm Mm-hmm. The designers represent primarily the needs of the user and then product managers. You have to
0: figure out how to get the computer to spit back out what the user needs again. So it's a cycle.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, as I say, look at all these systems, the complexity exists, right? The, the, taking people's money over the internet is really complicated, uh-huh. right? And so the que- you can't get Dude, rid of the complexity. I give it out.
0: <laughs> it's not that complicated. I, I mean, technically. Um, <laughs> I so, spend all my time giving the computer money. <laughs>
2: So, like, the complexity in these transactions exists. The question is, who's going to suck up the complexity? Is the machine going to suck it up or are we going to foist it on the user? And before we got better at design and before we got more sophisticated computing, you know, all that complexity was foisted on the user and they had to figure it out. And I actually think that's where travel still is, right? If you look at travel, it's it's complicated Mm -hmm. as hell. Like, I was flying last week. It's a freaking nightmare, all the check-in, TSA pre, blah, blah. blah. It's just a mess, right? And that's, that's not even counting the reservation piece because all I wanted to do was I just wanted to go to Seattle and I needed to arrive Monday morning and I needed a hotel. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I had this set of parameters and there's no system of yet that I could go to and tell it that and have the computer spit it back to me.
0: So well, I also don't trust it to know which flights don't suck and which hotels don't suck. But
2: that's, a, that's, that's because the computer's not sucking up enough of the complexity yet. But if you take a, you know, 5, 10, 20-year point of view, probably more 5, 10 years. I hope I don't um, have to wait 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In um, 20
1: years, we'll have a good traveling experience. Right. Can't wait. Well, we were, we were talking... Teleportation, done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: We were talking earlier about how when you guys first started doing computing, you had to hook everything up yourself. Uh-huh. You know, you talked about having to reinstall sound drivers. Sound Blaster card, yeah. Sound Blaster cards, all that sort of stuff. So that's an example where the system's gotten much better at sucking up the complexity, you know, in the in Sound the Blaster's users. right
0: there all the time. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so I, th- I think that's the general trajectory. Did you ever have any interest in going back to programming or trying to get back into that world during that six year?
2: Yeah. I, look, I loved prototyping, uh-huh. um, you know, and I and I still enjoy that part of it. But, you know, there's a there's a rigor and a professionalism to engineering.
0: What were you prototyping in?
2: Uh, at the time, it was mostly Macromedia Director using Lingo um, and then Visual Basic on the Windows side. So both of those were, you know, it was great. It was fun to be able to structure a prototype, but you know, shipping professional code is a—that's a different ballgame. Um, and I'm—I uh, don't know if I just never—I I was never interested in going to that level with it. Yeah. Um, but I enjoyed the higher level uh, prototyping stuff, which I, you know, the, the way I think about prototyping is, I think about prototypes as like movie sets. Right. So it kind of looks like the real thing, but you haven't actually hooked up the the plumbing and the electricity and it sure as heck isn't seismically valid. Right. But when you (laughs) write real code, like there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on Mm -hmm. that has to be professionally done, which I actually, to go back to the medtech example, you know, you go into some of those companies early on. I think they're pretty naive about how complicated a modern professional app really is. Oh, it's an
0: airport. Yeah. It's just crazy. It has all the same systems like authorization, like making sure people should have access to where they're going, make sure they can get there reliably. Like it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. And again, it goes to this complexity thing. I think the, the user sees the use case that's them. Right? And they don't realize that there's thousands of other permutations. You yeah. know, the, the Apple online store, the checkout process there ran in you know dozens of countries and uh, presented only options relative to that country yeah. and relative to that particular user's order. So uh-huh. like if you ordered an iPhone, you would have a slightly different checkout experience than if you'd ordered a Mac. Now, any individual user, they have no concept of all that stuff. But when you're designing it, you have to think at a systems level how checkout actually gets constructed based on all these conditions. Yeah. Um, so I, I think people who are users and they start delving into software, it's really hard for them to realize how complicated it really is behind the scenes, which, yeah, frankly, is an indication we're doing a, a better job.
1: Hmm. You know? One of the things I've been struggling with, so Brynn and I are trying to recreate some stuff for our own website, and I just don't know what the best use of my time is. Is it to like keep getting better at coding? Because I realize that the technical rigor it takes to actually execute at a professional level is just so much more work. And would that time be better spent being better at designing or prototyping?
2: Oh, uh, like for me, absolutely. No doubt. You'd be much better off spending your time on design. <laughs> and I say that, uh, because I firmly believe that there's not enough designers in the marketplace. Um, and if you have design talents and clearly you do, I think society is probably better served
1: by you, you utilizing you those works. <laughs> so you're saying I shouldn't spend six hours on a Saturday tinkering with the goddamn Request headers on an API call. I, oh, I suspect it was, a, could... it was a frustrating Saturday. <laughs> it was well, a great maybe, Saturday.
2: Maybe that's the only data point you really need. <laughs> like, you know, maybe when was the last stop. time you walked? <laughs> well, when was the last time you walked away from design problem with that feeling? You know, I maybe mean, the design problems you probably walked away when
0: Sketch crashed on his four hundred symbols.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to design together sometime. I'll show you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's a tool problem. That's not. <laughs> yeah. Something else. Yeah.
1: I know a guy that the- can help you out there. Uh, I want to know b- more about what you said earlier, how you, you knew you didn't want to get into management for a while.
2: Yeah. You know, I love the craft. Um, I like making software. And I think that they're, you know, perhaps a false or inaccurate belief that management takes you away from that. Um I uh, and and so like mo- like many designers, almost all the designers I know, they're really reluctant to go into management. They feel it's going to pull them away from the craft, and that's not necessarily the path they want to go on. Our profession also doesn't really celebrate managers. We tend to celebrate the individuals doing doing the work. Um, and so sort of professional status and reputations rely, you know, is all about your portfolio. It is kind of a portfolio business, uh, portfolio profession. And Shit, so- I gotta
0: build a portfolio. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And so, you know, when you move into management, you're making a decision to do some different activities that just aren't uh, recognized the same way by the people, by your by your professional peers, which is probably a lot of the status you're looking for. Now, what flipped for me um, was that I realized if I wanted to scale as a designer, you know, if I wanted – if my goal is to touch as many lives as possible and to leave the world a slightly better place, then I found it. There's no way I can do all the work myself. You know, it's better for me to help enable, you know, dozens or hundreds or potentially thousands of designers who are thoughtful and, and, and hardworking and creative, you know, and have them go out and do all the software. So for me, management was about scale, you know, and and in my previous management roles, I spent a lot of time being what I refer to as the shit umbrella, right? My goal was to keep all the shit out of the studio so that the designers could do their work. And, Looking back, I think those designers at that moment were like wildly more productive than they would have been if there wasn't somebody pushing back, you know, kind of protecting them. So I like to think that I, as a designer, I scaled a lot because I had 8, 10, 12, 20 it's, people.
0: It's functioning as a multiplier instead of a single exactly. additive component.
2: That's such a more precise way to say it. How is, <laughs> how is the,
1: the transition for you? I, I think it's a fascinating concept and we talk about it quite a bit like the companies that are offering multiple tracks to to ICs to switch into management but like I want to know more about that transition and giving up the, the, the not giving up the craft but like giving up the time you spend on the craft itself versus enabling other people to do the craft.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, it was a, a, a pivot. It was just a mindset pivot as so many things are, you know, and, and the way I describe it now is, you know, I'm still a designer. It's just that I'm designing the machine that designs the designs, right? I use that phrase all the time. So, you know, what I am <laughs> Designing the machine that designs the software that goes
0: on the hardware. That goes
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm trying to design the processes and put assemble the right team and set the right cultural context for design to be able to flourish. Um, and that's still a design problem you know we still have to think of with intentionality about the outcomes we want and who's involved and how we're going to measure success and you know and we have to experiment with different things and see how they work out and you know it's still it's still a design problem um it's just a a different kind of design problem that Unfortunately, doesn't necessarily uh, yield a portfolio, but, you know, well, why but do you I actually think that's some of the most interesting conversations going on right now. You know, if you look at Alex Schliefer over at uh, Airbnb, he's he's freaking killing it on this front. You know, he's just doing some really innovative stuff with how design at Airbnb functions. Facebook has one of the best design cultures that I've seen in Silicon Valley. You I know. actually don't know
0: Alex Schliefer.
2: Uh, well, you should. Alex, okay. Alex is an amazing guy. He's I don't know his exact title, but he's uh, head of design at Airbnb. Um, so yeah,
0: yeah, uh, Alex is amazing. <laughs> what <Whoops. laughs> but well, he keeps
2: it relatively low profile. Well, yeah, which he's like,
0: we we see Joe Gebbia, we see Katie Dill, we see the design language systems team, and all those people. But
2: yeah, so he sits in between Katie and, and Joe. Okay, right? um, I'm not quite sure who he reports to, but um, I think it might be Brian. But yeah, no, Alex is Alex is fantastic, and he keeps. You know, potentially, purposely, he keeps a low profile because I think he maybe correctly believes maybe his time's better spent focusing on the team and getting them where they need Mm -hmm. to be.
1: What? You mean our time's (laughs) not well spent on Twitter and Instagram? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) But my followers. (laughs) You know, again, I think Facebook's done
2: a phenomenal job. You know, Margaret's done an incredible job over there. Julie, um, you know, Luke, all those guys have done a great job. Um, Google has a really interesting design culture now across a whole bunch of different groups. You know, Apple had its own design culture that um, I've been out of for a while, so I don't I, I know exactly what's going on there now. But when I was there, it was an amazing culture. And all of those are really different because they have to – you know, you have to figure out how design as a function plays in the cultural context of that company um, and how that company behaves, what their norms are, what their business is about. So and, so management, if you think about it if you if you are open to the
1: idea that management can be about design, it is a fascinating design problem. I – agree I think what you said earlier about it being unfortunate that like I don't know I guess I'm self-admitting like it's an ego thing like not being able to point to a thing and say I made that yeah I don't know like there's something really satisfying kind of what you're saying earlier like seeing someone hold the thing and say I made that uh that self-publishing you, or whatever that you lose as a manager a little bit perhaps
2: yeah no look my experience is that you
1: do and it's
2: not crazy that I'm back doing IC work right now you know I don't think it's um it's we're going to likely you're going to live for a really long time and you're probably going to have a long career because you like doing this stuff. And so it's not crazy that you would ebb and flow between IC work and management work. And so right now I'm very consciously doing IC work and reorienting, reorienting myself to the tools. Cause I, like I stopped designing before Sketch came out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm having to learn all that stuff from scratch, which I can do, right? And it's going to end up making me a much better manager because I'm going to understand more what my team's doing on a day-to-day basis where maybe I got a little bit
1: distanced from that. How do you feel about the state of design tools, having taken a break? Can I <laughs> ask something quick on that last <laughs> oh, note? Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Awesome. Um,
0: was it an easy fit for you moving into management?
2: Uh. Yeah, because it was a really small team. You know, okay. it was a company um, called My CFO that was a little financial startup from Jim Clark, who had founded Netscape. Mm. And so I got brought in as an IC, and then my manager decided to leave the company. I got promoted into his role. Okay. So I kind of instantly inherited a team of about four. Um, and so there was a lot of guardrails in my experience. Mm. Uh, the company was already established. I think it would be, that would be helpful. really hard to come in and be a design manager. First first design management jobs in a company of six people, and you have to build a team right That's from the beginning. That's basically
0: so, where I was, and <laughs> yeah. it made me deeply
2: uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. that would, And I talked to a few people in that situation and tried to do some advising here and there. Well, sort of
0: well like, I was like, I think I want to be a manager, but now I realize I just want to manage myself and just go do my thing. Yeah, Separately from everyone else, please don't talk <laughs> to me. I am a
1: lone wolf. Do not talk to me.
0: I think I you know, I also warmed up to management
2: when I became a parent. You know, okay. I saw... A lot of management is sort of, you know, in a, 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 sort of similar to parenting, right? How do okay. you create an environment where somebody can flourish and grow and has a trajectory and feels like they're doing stuff on their own, but still has some guardrails if things go sideways? And now we're
0: back to work, Dad.
2: <laughs> well, again, the trick is to not make it seem like work, Dad. But and, and look, and I, I'm totally aware of that risk because I've made that mistake. I have been the grumpy old guy in the corner, and I know how that plays out. And it's not productive um so i i spend a lot of time trying to think about how to how to not set myself to up to be perceived in that role because that's a really that's an easy behavior for me to fall in and it's an easy way for people to it's an easy
0: way for everyone to fall into right like i feel like in design a lot of our role comes from being dissatisfied with the current solutions and so we tend to it's really easy to fall into grumpiness even if it's not what we should be doing
2: yeah, no, I see I see it a lot. I think that's part of what drives people out of the profession. You know, I, I talk to designers all the time who feel like every little thing they do is nitpicked. And, I, and I've expressed this to some of my friends and, and product management and other things that I don't know if there's another function inside a tech company that is as scrutinized as design. Like mm-hmm. everything we produce gets picked apart. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone in the company feels like they have an opinion. Um, that's incidentally not how Apple worked when I was there. It was very siloed as to who had the... Uh, ability status authority to offer creative opinions and it was and that's actually my understanding of how Disney works like it's okay. pretty siloed as to who gets to weigh in on stuff and I think that helps protect the creatives and helps protect the process a little
0: bit. I, f- I feel like those companies have a significantly opinionated design style it's it takes risks on one side to improve someone else's experience.
2: Yeah. At Apple, I used to – you know, and Apple's – uh, you know, I have this thing about companies are sort of – again, sort of like people. They – you know, Facebook is like a 10-year-old in some ways and Google is kind of like an 18-year-old and Apple turns out it's kind of like a 42-year-old, right? So like a little bitty startup when they're two or three, they're kind of like a two or three-year-old, right? They're still kind of wearing diapers and things go sideways, right? And – you know, even at five, you're still maybe wearing overnights and you wake up (laughs) screaming occasionally, right? By the time you get to be 40, generally, hopefully, you kind of got your stuff figured out and you kind of know what you're about in the world. So Apple has the benefit of having been around for a long time Mm -hmm. and developed those cultural norms where many of the other companies, you know, are all pretty new. I mean, again, like Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, like none of those companies existed, what, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. So they're still figuring out who they are. Mm -hmm. And at, at Apple, I used to talk about how there was this platonic ideal of what it meant to be Apple. And the trick was, could you channel that ideal? And it didn't emanate from Steve or like, like nobody owned that. There was a sense of what it, what the Apple way to do things was. (laughs) And your success as a designer was, could you understand that and bring it into the work?
1: Um, Is it possible to articulate that?
2: No, I think you have to, I think you have to feel it. I mean, when you sit there, you get it, you get a, a feel for it. And, um, You know, the Marcom team used to have a big – well, you know, when I was – again, I'm not talking about Apple today. I haven't been there in a few years. But in my experience when I was there, it's when we'd hire a new employee. I would tell them right at the beginning, like, like, look, just relax. You've gotten hired. You're not going to do anything useful for the first year. It's going to take you at least that long to figure out what's going on. Um, And almost to a person, they would sort of be put off or laugh at that because perhaps they'd come in from an agency and they wanted to prove, you know, who they were like right off the bat. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like – they would have a lot of things that weren't quite right and like a year, year and a half to go by. And they were like, oh, my God, you were so right. Like, you know, you don't you don't really feel it until you've been there for a while. But once you get it, once you get in that groove, like, you know, every, like you're just working in that channel. You understand that culture and that language. You become native to it. Um, and, and you have to have a fairly evolved company to, to have something that's that clear. You know, I mean, If you look at Google, I don't could, could you really I'm pretty sure you could recognize something that was Apple like. Right, like you could recognize, fonts. <laughs> yes,
1: Then fonts. <laughs> well, you could recognize
2: space. that a retail store is Apple-like. Sure, right. You sure. could draw those comparisons. You could sure. recognize a piece of software
0: sort of Apple-like. I don't, I don't know if you could say that about Google. I don't. You know. it, it all seems kind of future-leaning, but that's about as far as I can. Google, Google and Apple together like seem yeah. very like slanted forward.
2: Yeah. I mean, like, if you rent enough cars, you get a feel for what the BMW experience is versus the Lexus experience or something, right? And those, those companies had a long time to work out that really
1: precise expression of themselves. You were the head of design at Pinterest?
2: Uh, I was, yeah. So I reported uh, to Evan Sharp uh, for a while. Is, is
1: that indescribable essence of the design vision for Pinterest something that was on your mind?
2: Um, it was trying to, ferret that out and get Ben and Evan to be more articulate about it. Um, And I I think we made some progress on that front. You know, the the challenge is if if it can't be in some ways described or recognized, then the designers can't get in a groove with it. And so they end up – you end up having to try a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't ultimately work. So, you know, when you have a really clear ethos of what – how a company wants to express itself, you get massive uh, improvements in efficiency because the designers get in that groove and, like, Every comp is perfect, right? They just, they get in that, in that flow and they just know how to go. Um, whereas in companies, in, uh, you know, companies that aren't quite as evolved, you end up kind of in a scattershot. Is it this? Is it that? And it's mm-hmm. sort of this hunting until you find the thing. Style guides. You got to narrow in. <laughs> well, it's, it's so much more than a style guide, right? It's like,
0: it's, I don't know. It's just this. It's a full on design language.
2: Yeah. Well, it's who the company is. It's, it's organizational psychology, I mean, if you ever want a just a disaster of a design problem go to go work on a company's homepage and you can see like right off the bat all the politics all the cultural uncertainty like exactly what's going on because all those parties are trying to figure out how to express themselves in this one expression right like you, i mean maybe the analog would be as it took me a long time to get to the statement, I'm a designer who lives and works in Silicon Valley. It's right? been A-B tested. But it's, <laughs> but that's, but that's, it's super clear. And companies kind of have to, I think, for them to get really super efficient they and uh, have a really precise known design language, um, they need to get to that sort of uh, statement that's that concise. And I don't know if that's – I don't think that's Google's goal, for
1: example, so I won't fault them for not being there. Um, but it has been Apple's goal. But it's hard because you said – it. it You have to like know what it is but not be able to articulate it to a T, otherwise it becomes constraining, perhaps. I'm not sure I could apply a sentence to
2: Apples. The um, the phrase I used to use was Apple believes that personal that I'm sorry, Apple believes that technology can have a transformative effect on the lives of individuals. Right. And that was just one I made up on my own. That's what drove me to Apple. That's how I thought about Apple. But I, I think that was a useful statement. Technology can have a transformative effect on the lives of individuals. Right? It's not talking about companies. It's not talking about enterprise, and it's not talking about entertaining or any of that sort of stuff. It's like transformative effect on people's lives, and that's a, I think that describes a lot of what Apple tries to do. But the other analog I can use that is well known is Disneyland. You know, Disneyland is purposely the happiest place on earth. And once you decide you're going to make the happiest place on earth, you make a whole bunch of design decisions around that, right? And it has to do with how the staff is dressed, how friendly they are, how long their shifts are. Because it turns out if you drive that jolly trolley, you go nuts after like 15 <laughs> minutes because all the people are in your way. So their shifts are super short for the stressful for the stressful rides. You know, how often are there trash cans? Well, they're like every 10 feet because you don't want any garbage. How often are they collected? They're collected all the time. <laughs> you know, how do how do cast members come and go? Well, there's all these secret doors you can't see. You know, can you have Mickey show up on opposite sides of the park at the same time? Well, actually, you can't because people communicate, right? So if Mickey's at the front of the park and he walks backstage, that's the cue that Mickey can now come on stage from, you know, from the other side of the park. So there's, there's you know, again, once you get to that statement, then there's a whole ton of things that happen. Um, and Facebook's pretty close, like connecting, you know. Connecting. Pretty close to Disneyland. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, <laughs> in some cool Disneyland for nerds, <laughs> yes. Oh, what sorry, one other thing about Disneyland that uh, yeah. I think is really fascinating.
1: I, I think Disneyland's fascinating,
2: so yeah, to you guys and to everybody listening, like go to Disneyland as an adult by yourself as a designer. Well, just walk around for a while and think about it because you might it raise some is questions incredible. <laughs> um the other thing I love about Disneyland is it's uh, you know Walt talked about how the movies were a moment in time and there was a release and they were fixed. but Disneyland was the place that he was going to be constantly evolving. Right, so Disneyland changes all the time. You don't necessarily recognize it because there's not huge changes going on. But if you Star Wars now, (laughs) but if you you know if you go to Disneyland every few years, it's changed all the time. And I I think it's an interesting analog to package software Uh versus uh, a modern web application or mobile application. Right, that you know Facebook, Pinterest, these apps are changing all the time without the user really being conscious of them. Whereas previously we would have had you know uh, whatever PageMaker 2.0 and then PageMaker 3.0 was something different. Facebook (laughs) 4.0. It's here. So there's, you know, even like Steve Jobs talked about that. He said to John Lasseter, you know, everything we work on at Apple is going to be a doorstop in three years. You know, the movies you're making are going to be around for 100 years. Um, It's a really you know, powerful way to think about what you're actually doing. Like most software design today, I, th- I think sometimes we get it in our head that there's this big gigantic release and people are going to still be using it for a long time. I can assure you as somebody who's been in the profession for a while that we are making sandcastles that are getting washed out <laughs> with the afternoon
1: tide. Like, How do you feel about that?
2: Uh, I was very sad about it for a while. Yeah. But I realized my portfolio just looks silly because it was so out of date. Uh, And I was sort of sad because iOS 7 just made everybody's portfolio look stupid kind of overnight. But then I, you know, again, I tried to like think about it differently. And I came to realize that as software designers, we're working on stuff that's incredibly ephemeral. And what we're actually creating is these, these moments, these interactions for people. And if we create interactions that make sense and are useful, then these users have this moment in time where they're happy and satisfied. And it's... It's this momentary thing. And so it's, you know, it's sort of like um, maybe like a restaurant chef. You know, the chef isn't sitting there thinking the meal is going to last forever, right? They make this thing and somebody consumes it and that moment is what they find satisfaction in. And so I think about software now. It's like, do we create a useful moment for somebody? Um,
1: Sometimes it's sad that it is just gone. Like it's going to shut down or it's going to get reworked
0: and you'll – it's – Hey man, it's
1: just gone. I don't know. Maybe it just comes Meals back. Meals have like, a
0: season. Apps got to have a season too. Yeah.
2: I mean, the other analog I use, and and again, you know, a place like Apple was an interesting analog for this, or place to observe this, because the hardware is like a release, like it's a big deal. Like the hardware is a moment in time. We were working on web properties that changed all the time, so I used to compare it to. Um, different forms of filmmaking. So, you know, making the hardware is like making a big feature release. You know, you're making Spider-Man or something. It's going to come out in the summer and it's a big deal. There's gonna be a big marketing event. You know, we were making the daily show with Jon Stewart, right? Like, like we had another episode coming up the next day. Mm -hmm. And, um, so if something didn't go great on Monday night, we're going to do it again on Tuesday night. And it was really a question of how we were trending and where we're getting better over time, but nothing we were going to do is going to last forever. Nobody's, you know, as great as Jon Stewart was, nobody's going back and watching those shows again, right? They just, they have that memory. They have that experience with it.
1: Were you ever interested in the big release uh, things that happen at Apple, whether it's hardware or software? Uh, I don't
2: – yeah. I mean, I think there's something glamorous about that. It would have been interesting to be part of that show. Um but you know that wasn't the sure. role i was asked to play sure. uh and and frankly like that doesn't really apply to software anymore anyways sure. you know there's there are no really big bang releases uh for software sure. um so, so and i'm not a hardware
1: guy like yeah yeah we've kind of jumped around a little bit but when did you
0: start at apple
2: uh, uh 2006 i think it was I, I started um about 6 months before the iphone was announced i was going to
0: say that's uh Hello, of oh, a time was, to
2: join up. Yeah, yeah, it was good timing. So like, I was very fortunate to be there from about six months before the iPhone was announced, and I left about six months before the iPhone 6 came out. Okay, <laughs> So it was – I like to think of it as the, you know, prob- perhaps the premier trajectory of what I still believe is the greatest company in the history of capitalism. So I was just – it was total dumb luck. I never would have thought it turned out that way, but – I was lucky to be there. And, and to go back to the Disney thing, the, the thing that iced it for me was I was talking to my wife about the opportunity because at the time I was in a really great role at Yahoo that was uh, had a lot of promise for me. Um, but I, when I was thinking about Apple, there was this question of like, well, how long is Steve going to run Apple? And I, you know, there was nothing going on with his health at the time. It was just, here's an opportunity to work with Steve Jobs or work in a company when Steve Jobs is there. And like, how long is that opportunity going to last? This stuff doesn't last forever. You know, my wife you know, sort of said, well, you know, there's these guys that got to work with Walt Disney when he was still around. And believe me, they have great stories to tell in the grandkids. <laughs> and so part of going to Apple for me was I just wanted to be part of what I thought was gonna be history. Um And again, Steve Jobs, had sort of been this weird character in my life since I'd learned to program. And so the the opportunity to be in a company where he was running the thing and have any sort of interaction with him, even if it was just seeing him present, you know, to the company was, was um seemed to me historic and Something I should try to pursue, and frankly, it's what drew me to Pinterest as well. I felt and still feel Pinterest, you know, as a historic company. It's, it exists at a historic time and in, in tech. Uh, that little corner of San Francisco where we're sitting now, uh, people are gonna be right about this for for a long
1: time. I Just mean, down geez. the street. The, well, not, it's, it's literally like a block away.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if if you take like sort of this one square mile, maybe two square miles of San Francisco around the Caltrain station,
0: like. Twitter started here.
2: Uh, it's it's unbelievable. You got Twitter, you got Uber, you got Lyft, you got Pinterest, you got Airbnb, you got Thumbtack, um, you, got Zynga, you got Zynga, you uh, uh, Macro, got where Macromedia started. There's Patreon, now the Adobe building. I mean, it just goes and goes and goes. It I makes know. it makes the Renaissance look like mouse nuts. You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just unbelievable. And people are gonna, I believe, people are gonna be writing and talking about it for a long time. So the difference
1: is, the Renaissance. We still have paintings on our walls. Do we? <laughs> Some people do, and they pay a lot of money. You've for You interesting
0: taste in paintings.
1: I don't have those paintings because I don't have a hundred million dollars. <laughs> maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I
2: have no comeback to that. Um, yeah, we're not creating that sort of stuff, but we are. Yeah, yeah. I'm, we are influencing and shaping a future absolutely that are people that people are going to live in, and, and maybe we're only changing the future by one or two degrees. Yeah. But um, and it's not to say that there's not other amazing centers of innovation. Over a long the world, enough period
0: but, of time, one degree is pretty good. Pretty good.
2: Yeah. I mean, you look at the impact Silicon Valley's had on the world, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, it's, it's profound. It's probably, you know, maybe it's not as profound as indoor plumbing or something, but, you know, it's, it's changed the way digital plumbing.
1: (laughs) You mentioned earlier, I was kind of just joking about like whether to keep investing in code or to just focus on design. You said you should focus on design because you don't believe there's enough designers. Why? Why don't you believe there's enough designers?
2: Um, so I got to give a talk at the uh, first O'Reilly design conference back in uh, January of this year. And I started the talk, uh, looking out at an audience of maybe five, 600 technologists. And I asked the question, how many of you have had a moment in the last month where something didn't work right with a piece of technology? Some little moment that was frustrating, maybe really aggravating, but something didn't work quite right. Every hand in the room goes up. Course every hand in the room goes up. I'm like, okay, what about in the last week? How many people have had a had a tough interaction the last week? Virtually every hand stands stays up. I go, How about so far today? You know? And still about three quarters of the hands stay up. And I look out at the audience and I go, It's nine thirty in the morning. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> this is not how this stuff should work. Like, we go through our day, I'm sure you guys have had dozens of moments today where software didn't do quite what you wanted it to do. And I just Think that's a huge burden on the cognitive energy of people. You know, if you look at how much uh, how much cognitive energy, how much emotional energy is spent up uh, is spent every day trying to manage the technology. It's I just don't think we've gone nearly far enough at making software do what it's supposed to do. Like it's still not. Like we're still not master of that technology. At best, I think we're peers. And I think probably most of us feel that there are many times where the technology is winning. Um And I, I think that the challenge there is we don't have enough designers – because uh, I believe all, I believe every company wants to create highly usable software. I don't think there's any evil company out there that wants to foist complexity on their users.
1: <laughs> no, put but, more bugs in, please. <laughs> yeah, but there's
2: look, every everybody, any, every design manager in the country knows that hiring is the bane of their existence. Like finding design talent is so hard. I I firmly believe it's far and away the most in demand skill set in Silicon Valley, and it's probably the the number one throttle on innovation around the world. And we just don't have enough designers. Why? Um, Why? Do you think we have enough engineers? um, I uh, I don't know if we have enough engineers, but I can tell you that a lot more engineers don't solve the problem the same way a lot more designers do. (laughs) Because engineers will go code stuff because that's what they do and they're great at it, and they'll do their best to make something usable. But history would indicate they won't be all that successful at it. Um, So I think they, you know, for them to be productive and to create something that's going to be hugely beneficial to society, they need to be paired with a designer. Possibly a great example here would be the Golden Gate Bridge versus the Bay Bridge. You know, both built by engineers, both incredible engineering structures from a civic and civil engineering perspective. One of them is iconic and one of them is not. And I think that's probably the difference between having a designer on the project and not having a designer on the project. So I think the world can be a much better place if we have enough designers to partner with the engineers that we do have. And your question is why we don't have more designers. And I think there's a handful of answers there. One is it's such a new profession Um, That we just don't have the educational structure to graduate the number of people we need. So if you go to Wikipedia and you do a search for all the UI programs, all the degree programs in the United States that graduate people in UX, something directly related to what we do, you'll turn up maybe 30 programs. And you could look into any one of those programs and they would tell you that they're graduating their biggest class ever this year. And it'll be about 25 people, right? Like. All the UI programs in the country are going to graduate fewer designers than Stanford alone is going to graduate engineers this year. So, like, educationally, there's just not nearly enough people. Um, That's one. Another is that people don't realize the profession exists. You know, every designer I know, and I'm sure he, you know, do your parents understand what you do? No.
1: Yeah. I've tried to explain it. yeah. Yeah.
2: So people don't understand what it is. They don't know it's available as a profession. They sure as heck don't know the economics of it. Like nobody understands that UI designers, software designers make as much money as engineers. Like you've got all of, got so much of the education system, just STEM, 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 science, technology, engineering, math. Like there is no D in there. You know, John Mata is doing a great job trying to get an A in there and change STEM to STEAM. Um, What's A, art? A is for art, yeah. Which is a nice addition. You know, I have a, slightly different perspective, which is we need an education system that supports uh math for sure, engineering for sure, um art for sure, uh but probably also reading and writing, which turns out to be a really terrific skill that we don't emphasize as much. So on. it's mixing in humanities. Yeah, but it well in reading and writing is how we transmit information over time, right? And then the last one's design. And so if you take those letters, um again kinda M, E, A, R, and D, and you rearrange them, you get dream. Right? Mustard
1: <laughs> <laughs> mustard
2: it's so you know we've got a technology system that's talking about a stem education which is stems like some dilapidated part of a plant and we've got a few forward-thinking people talking about steam which is terrific but still a 19th century technology that drove trains you know i think we need to be talking about sort of stem steam we need to be talking about dream jobs right um and i you know i've thought about this a little bit (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know i've thought about this a lot so because i Like, I had the opportunity to go out and talk to high school students about design. And, uh, it's always, uh, amazing to watch all the parents' head explodes when we start talking through the economics of design and what the starting salaries look like and what the, what the, uh, career trajectory looks like. And they realize that their kid who is maybe is good at math and science, but isn't drawn to that, you know, like my son. I mean, my son is good in those STEM skills, but it's not what he wants to do. He wants to, you know, he actually wants to be a creative writer. Um, Supposed to be a storyteller, which is what design kind of is. And the education system doesn't encourage that for him. And I think that's to the detriment of society because, like, I think, you know, people who have those storytelling skills, those communication skills, um, can add, you know, a lot of value mm-hmm. um, in a way that, you know, it's, again, um, engineers are incredibly important. We need a lot of engineers. I believe we need about a 10 to 1 ratio between engineers and designers. Uh, Again, I have studied this. Uh, According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2014, there was uh, 1,860,000 people in the United States writing software code professionally, Um, so 1.86 million coders in the U.S. If you believe in the 10-to-1 ratio, which I happen to think is sort of the bare minimum, then you need 186,000 designers in the U.S. right now. I haven't met anybody who thinks we have even half that many And for reference, those numbers are 18 times larger if you look at them globally. So there's 18 times as many people writing code outside the United States as inside the United States, which if I remember the math means you need 3.2 million people designing software worldwide, and I just don't think there's that many. Um, So so I think people aren't aware that it exists as a profession. They don't know what it is. Like people don't realize somebody came up with all this stuff. They think it just arrives fully formed from the gods. And we still kind of have this culture that when you can't figure out the software, it's your fault because you're a stupid user. Steve Jobs did it himself though, right? Like all of it? (laughs) (laughs) And exactly your point, there are no famous UI designers. Like you can't name anybody. Like think of how many interactions you have with software day in and day out. Yeah, but she's not famous. But that's because you guys are famous. in the industry. <laughs> but yeah. I would argue
1: she's not like uh, famous to the degree of people in other industries. Like, I don't know. It's unfair to say it, but like professional athletes or yeah, CEOs. <laughs> Well, there's
2: famous business people. Sure. You know, I mean, on the, on the hardware side, you'd obviously point to Johnny Ive. Uh-huh. Uh, but even so, there's other furniture designers, and industrial designers that are generally known. The Eames, for example. The Gucci, there's there's plenty of others. Uh, so
1: in my head, I'm trying to unpack this two things that have come up in our conversation. One is that not enough people know that design exists and that it's a profession and that you can do it for a living. But also at the same time, inside of companies, design is the one place that everyone feels like they have a voice and an opinion. And we're trying to like suss out if those are two sides of the same coin. Like nobody knows it's a thing, but they can point at something and say, I don't like the way that looks or this doesn't work well.
0: Does a lack of value... Yeah, that because everyone be thinks
1: they can do it. They don't think it's a profession that can be skilled and taught and valued at the, the degree an engineer is valued. My
0: neighbor's 10-year-old kid can do a logo for me right? kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I think we're talking about two slightly different things. Okay. So, th- so the example where inside a company everybody thinks they can contribute, you've already narrowed your sample set to people that are in the tech industry right so they have an awareness of design cuz they work in tech and they know there's a design department but if you come out of tech for a second and you think about an inner city youth sitting in St. Louis do they know they've never been in a tech company they have no idea what happens in a tech company it all just seems like magic you know do they know that there's somebody like you who's actually designing this stuff and thinking about how it works you know before i got into tech and i was sitting in Dallas you know, using Illustrator and PageMaker, I literally thought that stuff just arrived fully foreign from the gods. Like I could not imagine that somebody sat down and did those icons. And I think that's a really common
0: this experience if you're not in the industry. The heavens.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so how do we fix it? How, how How does design become mainstream in the sense that people understand that there's a subset, there's a profession of people out there that build the things we use every day.
2: Yeah, I, I don't have any particular silver, silver bullet, but I do know a few things would be helpful. One is I do think designers... Should go talk to their local high schools and start trying to activate the next generation. Cause if we don't, they're people in high school right now, they're very pragmatic generation. Generation Z grew up in a state of perpetual war and economic malaise, just like the greatest generation do, did. And they're incredibly pragmatic about their careers. And if you go talk to them, they're going to go be orthodontist and sonogram experts and radiologists and like these really what? practical <laughs> skills, right? Which is the polar opposite of millennials. They grew up in a booming economy, right? So if we don't get to them fairly soon, we're going to lose them as a generation, right? And so I think we have to have some way of going out and advocating for people who are really kind of in high school now and then younger. Because um, Generation Z, Pew Research describes Generation Z as uh, anybody born after 1996. Currently, it's the largest generation in U.S. history, 25% of the population currently, about 90 million people. Obviously, the earlier generations are getting smaller because people die off or whatever. Generation Z is still growing by 4 million a year and will go for another few years. So by the time they're done, they could be pushing 100 million people, right? And so if we don't start talking to them pretty soon, again, we're just going to miss them. Um, So I think just going out and talking to them would be a big deal. I wish designers would stop focusing so much on – talking to their design colleagues and instead trying to advocate- Like this? (laughs) Exactly like this, yeah. But, you know, like how many people are, you know, trying to get in touch with reporters from Time Magazine and get something written about design, you know, and helping, how many people out there advocating for the profession outside of other designers? And again, I think because the, profession celebrates the craft so much we tend to look inward a lot and you know we sort of have all our little insider baseball stuff we all follow each other in medium and follow each other on twitter but how many people are actually trying to break out into the popular press and again john Maida is one example of somebody that's trying to do that but he's you know one of the only ones i can point to um and so i and i know there's a lot of great voices and writers in the design community because i see them um and I, you know, and i will put this on myself as well. I haven't endeavored a lot to speak outside the design community. Um, uh, so I think I think we all owe it to our profession to try to get out and make it more visible. You know, one of my um my favorite slides from one of my talks about this is I have this side by side comparison. That's um uh, the rank of UI design uh of uh, desired jobs by U.S. News and World Report. And so U.S. News and World Report ranked the 25 top jobs in America. UI design was number 13. Like. It's a great job. UI design is an incredible job. That's half the slide. The other half the slide is a survey from LinkedIn about the job most, uh, uh, most difficult to explain to your parents. <laughs> UI design was number one. Right. So, what you've got is one of the best jobs in the country. Well, you You see,
1: nobody understands. There's
0: these screen densities and there's like
1: this white space. And
0: yeah, (laughs) Yeah, let me just explain to you how the iPhone 6 Plus scales down from 3X to 2.82. You see, you got 375 pixels
1: wide. And and your parents don't give a shit.
2: (laughs) Again, I, it's not even the parents. Like, you know, when I talk to my, when I talk to my kids' friends, like they just don't realize that there are people in companies that, that decide these things, that work on this stuff. You know, they – everybody thinks about the engineers and they all think the, – because that's the profession that our culture has celebrated for so long. Um, and they just don't realize there's somebody else that's, you know, working on not only what it looks like, but, you know, how it behaves and like what the features actually are. You know, how many, you guys recently did the, uh, the additional emotions, uh, reactions on Facebook, right? Like that's all
0: Brian. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I won't would... take all the credit, but, uh, it yeah. was mostly me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have some, I have some thoughts for you. Oh, we'll shit. do that offline. I mean, uh... that, that's,
0: that's actually their new payments <laughs> test. You pay in emotions. Yeah. Yes.
2: Um, You know, if you go talk to a mere mortal on the street, uh, there's no way that they're going to say, oh, yeah, it's like like they must have done a hundred variations on that thing. I bet they thought that through,
1: you know. I bet they user tested all around the world. I Uh, bet it's
0: only (laughs) been around for a month, not two and a half years. (laughs) Um, It's hard for me to draw
2: a straight line through my career. It's been kind of all over the map. But when I look back on it, I think the challenge I've had at every stage is how I scale more, right? And so you know some of that was learning was going perhaps from visual design to interaction and then information architecture which I think all have more foundational uh, effects on the design then I wrote a book that tried to teach people how to design web applications that weren't already designers um and then I went into management which was about empowering my team and now I'm trying to go out and advocate for design as a skill so we can attract ever more people to the profession so my my hope is that at some point, I can look back and maybe reliably think, like, "Wow, there's another thousand designers out there working because they heard one of my talks, so they, you know, or they saw me speak about it, or something." Like that'd be an incredibly satisfying career legacy for me, and I think it would be for a lot of designers, you know. Um, and, and so, I, I hope that many of the designers in the world start to think, as their in their career career trajectory, how do they scale? And uh, you know, that's a that's a great goal, I think.
1: What's well, keeping you up at night right
2: now? Um, so lots of things keep me up at night, but, um, which we won't go into, um, (laughs) Pokemon Go is part of it, but, Uh um, I I'm concerned in, in this particular realm, I'm concerned that we're going to miss this opportunity. I think that there's this moment in tech when design is really being embraced and we have that seat at the table. Every company you go into, man, there is an empty chair and they are ready for you to sit in it and we don't have people to take that spot. And so I'm concerned that we're going to lose this opportunity to inject a lot of design into tech companies because we don't have the bodies and the energy and the enthusiasm and the desire to play those roles. Um, And that would be a huge missed opportunity because once the tech industry kind of gives up on design, they're going to move on to whatever the next thing is. Um, And
1: I don't know know if we're going to get this opportunity again anytime soon. Interesting. I hadn't thought of it as like a thing that is going to be moved on from more just something. Like, well,
0: if they can't succeed at it, why keep working on it?
1: Would you say design hasn't been successful, or we just haven't I permeated? I think there's pockets of it that have been successful,
2: but again, I just don't know if we're anywhere close to the to the right scale. So, so I think uh, you know any individual app or many individual apps are probably getting easier to use and more obvious, but. If you think about the amount of technology that's coming into an individual's lives it's just overwhelming like how many how many different systems do you deal with just in a common day you know the all the different point of sale things just watch people try to use one of those chip cards you know at safeway it like makes everybody nuts and so if you think about all those little software mediated interactions like there's just dozens and dozens and dozens that are piling on top of each other during the day and plenty of users you know are just like god screw it like I don't know. I'll just pay cash, or I'll you know I'll do something else. Like I think you're just going to lose consumers. They're just going to kind of turn off to it.
1: Um, this has been great. That's,
0: <laughs> that's, that's a p- thank you. Pretty solid
1: spot to end. We are well over time now. Uh, where can okay. people find you online? Uh, it's uh
2: Twitter Bax, at at Baxley. That's right um well, so you're you're a real frequent <laughs> tweeter huh i am but i'm so frequent i never look at my own stuff it's like how hey, you don't know your own phone number uh and then uh there's a few things i have at uh, baxleydesign.com
1: cool your blog that is updated occasionally <laughs> yes yeah, a few sem- times last year semi annually yeah semi annually yes i look that's that's you know, better than
2: most yeah that's you know one of that's my fault i should be writing more and i'm not haven't been making time for it so practice what you preach bob yes i'm working wow. on it working on it, working <laughs> <laughs> on it keep thank, me honest brother keep me honest thanks so much thanks for, for coming on. on okay thank you gentlemen
0: that was a great show i really enjoyed that one and thank you to bob for coming and hanging out with us for a while he had to come all the way up from south bay which was like an hour-long train commute <laughs> i felt
1: so bad afterwards he took the cal train home but it was after a giants game
0: Ugh. uh Thank you so much, Bob. Bob.
1: (laughs) You're the best. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, let us know what you think. We're on Twitter, at designdetailsfm. Hit us up. Give us thoughts, critique, feedback, anything. We'd love to hear it. And of course, if you want to just chat with us and the rest of the spec community, join our Slack team. You can go to spec.fm slash slack. Uh, We've got like 5,500 people in there growing quite a bit, talking about design, development, tools, products. Mm -hmm. Anything you can imagine. It's a lot of fun.
0: There's channels for each of our shows. They're kind of centered around the topics on the shows rather than the shows themselves. So you can just jump in there and chat with a bunch of designers in the design details room or the layout room or go talk about development in Does Not Compute or Developer Tea. You can really get wherever you want to be. And
1: of course, before you go,
0: be sure to hit up Co. They
1: are our sponsor that made this episode possible. They're an agency building amazing products for people everywhere.
0: They're based all over the Western Hemisphere, San Francisco, New York City, Reykjavik, and they're hiring. So you should go work for them. Uh, Wayno.co slash
1: careers. Thanks again so much to Wayno. Check out all their social media links in our show notes and go follow them. Have a good time and check out their work.
0: We'll see you on Wednesday with Lisa Tsai.